Welcome to the Voices Amplified edition of Radioactive, a takeover of KRCL's Monday Night Airwaves in partnership with Amplify Utah and student journalists at Salt Lake Community College. I'm Marcy Young-Cancio, Assistant Professor of Journalism and Digital Media at SLCC and Executive Director of the nonprofit Amplify Utah, which aims to boost representative storytelling in local media. We're thrilled to be bringing a new wave of journalists into the conversation, including tonight's host, Sean Stetson. Take it away, Sean. Thanks, Marcy. Hi, I'm Sean Stetson with Voices Amplified, recorded on the South City campus at Salt Lake Community College. Before we dig into our show, we want to acknowledge that we are all collectively on Native American shared territory of the Goshute, Navajo, Paiute, Shoshone, and Ute people. We honor the original ancestors and descendants of this land and also offer respect to their tribal communities. We acknowledge this history to cultivate respect and advocate with our indigenous students and communities who are all still connected to this land. Coming up later in the show, we will be speaking to the Black Student Union Vice President, Jesse Tembo, as well as the events coordinator, Sharifa Harrigan, about events they planned for this last Black History Month, as well as what's coming up for future events and how everyone can get involved. Following that, we'll talk Bruins basketball with assistant head coach Christopher Killen. But first, we are joined by Tim Sheehan, Vice President of Government and Community Relations here at Salt Lake Community College, and Johnny Tolstrup, a staff writer for The Globe who covered the 2022 legislative session. Johnny, can you go ahead and introduce yourself, please? Happy to do that, Sean. Grateful to be here on Voices Amplified with you. As he mentioned, I am a staff writer here at The Globe, and I've written a couple of pieces about the legislative session, so I'm grateful for Sean to have invited me on to talk about this with Tim. Mr. Sheehan, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Great to be with you. Do you mind explaining to our listeners what your office does exactly? Sure, be happy to. So, we have the government's Office of Government and Community Relations, and our job is to um, reach out and be an advocate and a liaison for the college to our federal, our state, our local government officials, and many of our community leaders. We really are here to interface with them to make sure that we're promoting good laws, rules, regulations that are going to be helpful for our students and the college at, at large. We try and advocate for funding, increased funding for the college, for our students. We try to increase for, advocate for increased funding for more Pell Grants and Pell Grant funding, grants for the college. Uh, and again, um, any laws or, or rules or re uh, regulations that would be helpful and ensure they're not burdensome to the college. So that's really our role. We reach out to these government elected officials and bodies, try and be representative of the college and really put the college in the best light and get the best funding and regulations in place to help the college and our students. I noticed that you were appointed vice president back in September of 2012. And I was wondering what you could tell us about how the Office of Government and Community Relations has changed from the time you were appointed until now. Sure. I'd say the biggest change is on the government relations side, to be honest, it hasn't changed a whole lot. We, we, uh, We've just tried to connect. We have, and over the last 10 years, really tried to build good relationships with our key elected officials and local government officials. I think we've done that. I think the place we've changed is we have an office of community relations as well. And Jennifer Seltzer Stitt of the college leads that. We've really been much more intentional about our community outreach and really trying to tie together our community work 
with the government relations work that we do, trying to be really mindful and be in the communities and make sure that the things we're doing from a government relations perspective are very interwoven and connected with and intentional with our community relations office. So I'd say that's probably the biggest change that we have made is really just try to be more intentional about being in the community, understanding what the community wants, how that interacts with Salt Lake Community College, our needs, and then advocating that way. So that's probably the biggest change I've seen. Yeah, that's awesome to hear, Tim. It's great to hear that, you know, we're able to, you know, link the community with the elected officials better through that office. Um, One thing I wanted to bring up with you is that one of the premier pieces of legislation from this year was SB 59, the cut in state income tax. It's going to account for about 200 million in this from the education fund to fund this tax cut. Yep. Do you, how do you think that's going to affect future education legislation and funding? Yeah, John, it's a, it's a good question. Um, and you're right, there is a, a cut in the income tax. And the income tax in Utah as it stands today, which it could change, there are actually discussions about that this session. As it stands now, the income tax is what funds, largely funds education in the state. So when there is a tax cut on the income tax side of things, there will be a cut in that education fund. And so there will be less funding available. Now, uh, all of public education, meaning K-12 and higher education, are institutions that are funded out of that education fund. So if you make a cut, you're right, there is going to be a cut in funding available to K-12 and and to higher education. Now, I will tell you to maybe put that in context, that $200 million, we have about a, I think it's about a $15 billion budget in the state. So just to put in context, it is a relatively small amount. The cut is not enormously significant. Could it have an effect? Yeah, it could. It certainly could. But one thing, another thing to kind of note is that higher education is also funded out of what's called the general fund, meaning the sales tax funds the general fund. We actually receive funding out of that general fund as well as the income um, fund that's generated, uh, you know, the income tax funds that fund. So I guess my point is we run a little bit of a risk of potentially losing money, but I will tell you there are other ways to get funded in higher education. So as far as the college and our students, I'm not overly worried about it. Um, Our role every year is to come and advocate as the college and as higher education for increased funding for us and for our students and for the faculty and staff. And I really think that if we make a strong case, which I think we, we do every year, we'll get the funding that we need. So I'm not too worried about it. If it were a bigger amount that were being cut on that tax cut, I might worry a little bit more, Johnny, but I'm not, I'm not too worried at that level that it's going to have much of an impact on us in the long term. Awesome. That's great to hear. I mean, it's definitely when you hear like 200 million for a lot of people, that's a very scary number to think about, but it's nice to have that put into a context that helps make it a little easier to swallow that pill. Um, I do just in a slight follow-up kind of talking about budget things. uh, I, when I was doing some background research for this, I noticed in your legislative preview, your office put out that there is approximately 1.68 billion in uh, one time funds available in the education fund and 1.07 billion in ongoing funds. And I was just wondering like what the difference was between like the one-time fund and like ongoing expenses. Yeah, that's great. So that's a really great question. So the the budget, when they look at the revenue that comes in, they try and project it on, hey, what can we put into what we call a a base? Meaning how much do we think is really going to be there long-term? And how much of this is funding that we're going to categorize as one-time? Meaning but we're not sure that money is going to be there next year. So we're going to fund this in a one-time basis. So it kind of depends on where the income comes from, 
how it's being generated, and then they determine which of that they'll say, we've got enough money to put that into an ongoing budget. So for example, if we were to ask for a faculty position, for example, we would want that to come out of ongoing funding, right? You don't want to have that funded and have it be one time. But there are lots of things. I'll give you a good example, buildings. Buildings for higher education and other state agencies are often funded out of a one-time funding, right? It's a great way to spend money. So when you have a, you know, when you have hundreds of millions, if not a you know, billion dollars one-time money sitting out there, that's a great way to fund buildings. You fund them, they're one time, you pay for the building for 60 million bucks and it's over and it's done. So it's a really great question. And it's this balancing act that legislature goes through every year. How much do we put into an ongoing fund? And how much do we say this is going to be one-time funding? That money come, may come back into the budget next year, but it's kind of a smart, conservative, good way to budget to make sure you're not saying, hey, this money's going to be there forever. Let's just fund everything. And then you find out, whoa, we, we got a budget shortfall. Now we got to go back and retract and pull back those salaries for faculty and for state employees. So that's kind of the difference between those. And it's really kind of smart budgeting to, to do that. Awesome. Thank you for that answer. Uh, now, Mr. Sheehan, uh, having experience in the Utah state government, I was curious what your biggest takeaway was from this past legislative season. Well, I'll tell you one thing, John, there was a lot of money. Um, it was a, it was really a record year. And, and that largely came because um, there was a lot of federal money, stimulus money that was put into the Utah state economy. So you had the benefit of a roaring economy, low unemployment, growth, um, you know, rapid growth rapid you know, construction that's going on across the state that's just bringing in enormous amounts of money into the state, bolstered by federal funding that came through stimulus money to help out states as, as we experience COVID. So you have this combination of a, a record-breaking economy combined with federal funds that were put into that state economy. And so you had unprecedented levels of, of available dollars in, in the state budget. And so lots of projects were able to get done. We had great increases for higher education, for example. Um, they're going to benefit our students. Scholarship money that's going to come to our students. Other program money that's going to come to students. Increases for faculty. Compensation increases. So the big takeaway really, I think, was record year in terms of budget. Record year in terms of spending. Uh, it won't last, um, that's for certain, certain but, but it really was a remarkable year that way. And so part of it was legislators trying, frankly, to say the expectations were out there. Everybody knew there was a lot of money. And the question is, how much money you know, could they spend? There, we heard stories, anecdotes from legislators saying, you know, there were two, two to three times as many uh, requests for money and uh, funding as they actually had, even in a record year. So everyone knew there was a lot of money. Everyone asked for it. Not everybody got it, but a lot of people went home really happy from that legislative session. The trick is what's going to happen next year when there's not that kind of money floating around in the state. There'll be a lot, but it won't be that kind of money again. Which leads to my follow-up question. When you say you don't think it'll last, what do you mean in terms of that? Well, the biggest biggest thing coming out of Sean is that the federal stimulus money. So, so the money that the feds gave to the states to, to make sure they could make it through the COVID crisis, that money will run out. So by the by the next beginning of the next fiscal year, which is a year from July, all that money that was put into the Utah state economy from the federal its stimulus is going to be gone. So right off the top, you're taking probably a couple billion. For example, they they put a billion dollars of money into transportation projects this year, a billion. 
That is an enormous number for, for one year of all federal funds. That was all federal funds. So that will be gone. So that's going to be the biggest reason. I think the economy is still going to be really strong. There's no sign that it's slowing down. I think you'll still have great revenues coming in, but it will be a more normal year because that federal funding will be taken out of the out of the mix. So that's probably going to be the biggest difference, Sean. Yeah, no, but I mean, that sounds really, that's, you know, it's a very kind of uplifting picture of the legislative session. And, you know, it's always nice to you know when they go into a session and be like, yeah, there's actually a lot of money to be spent this year. Like, let's <laughs> let's get some things done. That's right. And, and they yeah. did. And Two unfortunately, we're, they did. we are starting to run a little short on time. So I've just got one more right. quick question for you, Tim. Uh, with the legislative session having concluded, what is the best way for people to get involved with local politics and how can they influence their rec- their elected representatives throughout the rest of the year? Yeah, it's a great question and at a great time to be involved. As you know, we're in an election year right now. Um, most state legislators, every, every member of the House is up for re-election. Many members of the Utah State Senate are up for re-election. Every member of the Utah congressional delegation is up for re-election. Senator Lee is up for re-election. Uh, we don't have a gubernatorial race. So there are many races going on at the state level and the federal level where uh, you can, and I encourage people to get engaged. Um, that could be volunteering for a candidate for their election. That could just be going up to meetings and town halls when these people are having town hall meetings and weighing in and giving your perspective. Voting, I would certainly hope that everybody listening will register to vote. It does matter. We, we've seen it too many times that one vote really can't, literally can make a difference. I would encourage everybody to be active in, in voting. So this is going to be a busy year with lots of politics, lots of races. Go volunteer for a party. Doesn't Pick your party. doesn't matter. Pick a party that represents your values and and, and, and the people that represent the kinds of, uh, you know, stands that you want to take and have them take, doesn't matter. Just get involved and have your voice be heard. This is a great year. And we're, we're always happy in our office to talk to folks in more detail about, hey, where they might get engaged and might get involved. We'd love to do that, but we would love to see as much participation from your listeners as possible. That's the process. That's the, the way this, this country works and works well. So thanks for bringing that up. And I, I hope folks will do that. As you heard, Mr. Tim Sheehan, the vice president of Salt Lake Community College Government and Community Relations, just get out there. doesn't matter about the party and register to vote. I'd like to thank our guests, uh, Vice President Tim Sheehan and Globe staff writer Johnny Tolstrup for providing us with an in-depth look at the 2022 legislative season. Uh, but before we go, uh, Mr. Sheehan, do you have a song for us? We like to ask our guests that, everyone. Well, I, I've been... Um... Listening, I'm a country fan. I'm actually a fairly eclectic music fan, but I, I like country music. Kelsey Ballerini has a song called Half of My Hometown. And uh, one of my favorites brings back memories of my time growing up. So that's one I've been listening to a lot. And uh, I think everybody who's grown up, no matter where, can relate to uh, what, she, what she talks about in this song. Half of My Hometown by Kelsey Ballerini and Kenny Chesney. Half of my hometown still hanging around, still talking about. Touchdown, they're still wearing red and black, go about cats while the other half of my hometown they are That's a great song. Johnny, do you have a song for us this week? Of course. You know, I always like to pick a song from something from my home country of Canada. So for this week, I've got from Purity Ring. It's a song called Sea Castle. I'd like to thank our guests, Vice President Tim Sheehan and Globe staff writer Johnny Tolstrup for providing us with an in-depth look at the 2022 legislative season. Let's get Johnny's song on. This is Sea Castle by Purity Ring on KRCL. I could build a big machine, draw pictures for the wall.
The Utah Black Chamber's rescheduled Evening in Harlem Gala is on Friday, April 1st. This evening of art, music, and Harlem Renaissance-style entertainment benefits the Black Success Center. More information and registration at eveninginharlem.com. Utah Community Action is one of the largest nonprofits fighting poverty and its causes in the state. To support or access their programs for adult education, case management and housing, Head Start, heat utility assistance, nutrition, and weatherization for homes, visit utahca.org. Hey, it's your friend John Florence here. Some of you found KRCL way before smartphones social media, while others have never turned on an actual radio. Whether you use a mobile app or you've maintained old school cred, KRCL sounds better when you give. Donate today at krcl.org. Welcome back to the Voices Amplified edition of Radioactive. We want to thank everyone for tuning in as we continue with more hard-hitting student journalism. We now welcome the Salt Lake Community College assistant head coach for the men's basketball team, Christopher Killen. Thank you for joining us, Coach. How are you? Hey, Sean. I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. You had an unbelievable season this year, 35-2, and which unfortunately didn't end the way you wanted to, losing in the championship game of the NJCAA tournament. How, How are you doing? How is the team doing? You know, we're doing good. Obviously, uh, last Saturday night, it was a little bittersweet getting to that point. And like you said, we had an incredible year up to that point. And then to come out and come up on the short end of it in the championship game was a little little disappointing. But um, the further we've gotten away from last Saturday, I'll be honest, my perspective's really gotten better. And, uh, you know, we had a ton to be proud of. And now that these guys are all reaping the rewards of the season we had with the recruitment they're getting and the recognition they're getting, um, it really was a special season and one that I'll, I'll remember for, for a long time. So it was good. What did you think of the overwhelming support the Bruins had during the championship run? You know, it was great. Uh, We were fortunate enough to host the regional tournament here in late February on our campus um, here at Salt Lake. And from there, we had a ton of friends and fans on campus to watch our games. And uh, moving on from there to the national tournament, we had a great contingent of Salt Lake people who followed us over there to Kansas. We had our president, athletic director, uh, VP and, and numerous other people from here at the college that came to support, as well as all the kids' families and, and friends and the coaches' friends and family as well. So it was really, really great. We had a great um, showing for, for our college and, and a ton of representation there in Kansas, which, which really made it more comfortable for our guys and, and really just a welcoming environment for all of us. What did you learn about your team this year? You know, the biggest thing I'd say is we learned – to be consistent and be ready for everyone's best shot. Because when you're the number one team, which um, we were from wire to wire when the poll opened in November until it closed in February, we were ranked number one all season long. So as you could imagine, every time we played, we were going to get the other team's best shot. Um, There was no lack of motivation on the other side for those teams to come in here and try to beat us and dethrone us from that spot. And a testament to our guys and our coaches, we were, we were ready and we were prepared for every game and we came out and played and, Um, I was just really proud of that because we really got everyone's best shot throughout the year. And if you're not consistent in college basketball, it's very easy to to get knocked off. But like I said, credit to our guys. Uh, They did a great job answering the bell each and every night this year. Can you talk to us a little bit about your point guard, Chase Adams, who was recently a feature profiled by our own Globe editor in chief, Morgan Workman? Yeah, that was a great article, by the way. Um, 
happy to see Chase getting some recognition. Chase uh, was very, very good for us this year. Um, you know, similar to like a quarterback in football, point guard is a very, very important position. And Chase really embodies everything that a point guard is. Um, and my favorite quality that I'll remember about Chase um, as long as I'm alive is his consistency and everyday desire to be good and bring the positivity to the team and practice and really just made it a joy to coach him. And he really lifted our group um, as a whole on a daily basis, just with the positive energy he brought and the leadership he brought. And obviously he's got some great experience in life um, growing up playing basketball in Chicago, which is an excellent basketball city. And then moving on to the division one level for the past two years. Um, he really has some, some good experience in the game. And, and we were very fortunate to benefit from, from his experience and his, you know, uh, position on our team. Continuing on that, are you expecting some of your players to go to D1 schools? Yeah, we are. Um, you know, we had 11 active players on the roster, and um, out of those 11, we'll have nine of those um, most likely move on to the Division One level. They're all still kind of sorting through what exactly it is they'll do. Um, a lot of guys and you guys won't know this, but this time of year now that the season's kind of concluded, a lot of guys will start to take their visits to the, to the schools that have been recruiting them. So we have a number of guys who are taking visits throughout the month of April and hopefully we'll help them to narrow it down where they want to go and uh, yeah, find, find their future school for the next two or three years. So we have a lot of guys that'll, that'll be moving on. And, and that's really my favorite part of coaching at this level is watching the guys move on and earn new opportunities and continue to have success in their careers. So yeah, we'll have a we'll have a good number moving on. I think nine um, could be as high as eleven, but right now it's looking like nine. Are you at a liberty to say what schools players are uh, thinking about going to? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I'll talk about a couple guys. Jordan Brinson, he was a uh, first team All American for us this year. He was the MVP in our conference. He's uh, going to visit Fresno State University in California and also West Virginia, uh, which is in the Big Twelve. So two great options for him to choose from. Um, Chase Adams, who we just talked about, has actually taken a visit to Jackson State in Mississippi this weekend. Um, Quincy McGriff is going to visit Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. Jackson Last is going to visit Holy Cross, um, Kennesaw State, and then maybe one or two other schools on top of that. Uh, Max Watson is most likely going to visit Cornell, um, which is a great, great situation, an opportunity for him. Obviously, a great school in the Ivy League and great academic um, outside of that, Doc Bradley, another one of our players, he's going to visit Missouri State University. And as of right now, I think that's all the visits our guys have set. But with that being said, that's that's a great number to be at for this time of year. So uh, those guys are going to get a chance to get on campus and see and meet some of these coaches they've been talking to and build relationships with and figure out if that will be their their next move. So it sounds like half your roster could potentially be leaving this offseason. What does recruitment look like for you? coming up next year? Yeah, you know, it's pretty crazy. Um, recruiting at the two-year level and especially at a place like Salt Lake where we can attract such great talent. Um, we generally recruit guys who will just spend one year here at Salt Lake. So the roster does turn over pretty regularly. And uh, we've already got a pretty good start on that. We brought one, uh, one player in at the break. He came from Iona College in New York. And uh, we're working on closing a couple others at the moment. But we hope to, to have probably five or six guys signed on paper by the end of the month. And that'll give us the rest of the summer to kind of put the pieces in place and, and choose who we want to add to the roster to kind of finish things up. So recruiting's never ending. It's always, always going. And um, yeah, like I said, Salt Lake, we're very fortunate to be able to attract some of the best players here. 
So when you say you're always going, do you ever have time to decompress and recharge for the next year? You know, I try to find time when I can. Um, right now it's pretty hectic. Obviously our season just ended, but at the same time, this is one of the busier times for recruiting. So I've kind of targeted May as the time that I can hopefully, um, you know, take a break for a few days or maybe a week and get away. But um, it's a very busy deal. And, and recruiting, like I said, is kind of a 365 day, you know, a year job. It never really ends. So you're kind of always on call with that. But um, I've done this for a long time and I enjoy that part of it. So I'm not complaining, but that's just the reality of it. Now, I wanted to follow back to uh, Chase. Can you tell me and our listeners what a point guard does to make the team so successful? What is essential? Yeah, yeah, no, obviously, um, you know, a, a saying that a lot of people in, in basketball will, will tell you, and it's very true, is that the point guard is like the coach on the floor. So he's really like the extension of our coaching staff. And so we expect him to be able to organize our team, um, get our guys in places to be successful, lead the team vocally and, you know, physically as well with his actions. So it's a very, very important position. And Chase obviously embodies, like I said, a lot of those qualities that you want to see in that position. Um, so he was he was huge to us all year long and I was really the head of our snake defensively. We had one of the best defenses in the country and one of the best offenses, but he was really the main catalyst on both sides of the ball for us and and really, really put us in a good position every single night. So from this season, what was your your highest point? Well, I'd say our highest point was the run we made at the national tournament in Kansas. You know, it obviously didn't end the way we, we had planned, but um, to go there and beat three really good teams um, over the course of the first three games we played was was really hard to do. And, um, you know, we were really riding high at that point going into the championship game. And um, obviously, like I said, we didn't come out on the side of it. We had hoped going into the, type, the championship, but um, that that run we made just to get to that point was really incredible. And, uh, you know, it, it was a it was a hard, hard road, three really good teams. And we definitely had to earn it in and, and every game we played. Well, here's a stat for you. So we played three games to get to the championship game. And the difference in those three games was five points. So every game was down to the wire, last shot, extremely competitive, extremely tough. And we were very fortunate to come out on the right side in those three games. So that was probably for me, the, the highest point. Now I don't mean to harp on the loss, but like you said, all those games were really close and I got to be honest, I was watching it myself and it just seems like the team ran out of gas. What's the vibe in the, in the locker room? What's going on? How do you, I don't mean to harp on it, but. No, it's okay. It's, it's obviously a valid uh, question and, and one we've asked ourselves as well, but we um, you know, we played 11 guys pretty consistently throughout the season. So our hope was that our depth would, you know, give us the, the opportunity to get that game and still have the legs and the, the you know, the stamina to, to play at a high level like we expected. And, and I'm not sure we ran out of gas um, physically, I think mentally and emotionally, um, the three games being so tight and so close like they were, I think maybe those two areas, we were a little more drained than we were physically. Um, but as you know, those are all factors in, in how we do things in life and, and the emotional part of it. Um, was really hard to, to, to recharge and, and play that last game. And I think you saw that by how they came out and had a great start to the game. And we, uh, quite frankly, had the worst worst half we played all year long. Okay, so coach, before I let you go, just want to see, are you a March Madness kind of guy? Absolutely, yeah. Who was your final four, if you don't mind me asking? You know what? I've actually, I'm three for four, three out of four, which I've actually already, I think, won the bracket pool I challenge I entered on ESPN but um, I had Villanova Duke North Carolina and I had Kentucky but obviously they were upset by 
the Cinderella St. Peter's. So um, three out of four ain't bad, and, and I'm in pretty good shape in my bracket challenge. All right. Well, that's pretty impressive. Uh, before we let you go, do you have a song choice for us? Song choice for our season? Yeah. Um, you know, a song we we enjoyed was uh, The Chainsmokers. It was a song called Something Something Like This. It was uh, kind of a song we rallied around and, and had a lot of fun with. So it was really good for our team. And it'll obviously remind me of this season. And that's a special one I'll always remember. Thanks, Coach. Great season. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Let's get that song on. It's Something Like This by The Chainsmokers. This is a Voices Amplified edition of Radioactive on KRCL. Where'd you want to go? Welcome back to the Voices Amplified edition of Radioactive. I'm Sean Stetson. We are excited to be joined now by Jesse Tembo, Vice President of the Black Student Union, and Sharifa Harrigan, BSU event coordinator, who will be discussing events held by the BSU during Black History Month. We will also be discussing upcoming events they're holding and ways that listeners can participate. Thank you both for joining us. How are you guys? Good. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you so much. I want to start with Jesse. Um, tell us a little about the Black Student Union and what you do as a vice president. Okay, so the Black Student Union is just basically a club where people can come uh, for the home, make friends who are just like them. And it's also a place where we discuss a lot of important issues important to our students. And we're going to talk about those later on the show. And as vice president, I basically just assist our president in making sure the club runs smoothly and yeah, engaging with our community. What are you studying at Slick and what are your future career goals? So right now I'm majoring in exercise science and my future career goal is to be an athletic trainer. So hopefully to work in the NFL or the NBA, you know, with the big players. And Sharifa, can you tell us about your role as the event coordinator for the Black Student Union? Yeah, so as the event coordinator, I just make sure that all events that we have coming up are um, set set and ready to go. And as far as like making sure the decorations are there, making sure we have rooms booked, making sure if any invitation needs to go out um, that it's getting sent to all students or faculty and staff, depending on the crowd that we're trying to attract for the events that we have. Um, and just making sure that everything runs smooth the day of events. Also, what are you studying at Slick and what are your future goals? So right now I'm currently studying um, hospitality and management and my future goals um, is to pretty much try and touch all aspects of those areas in hospitality. It is a broad aspect, right, in terms of that career goal, but I just want to, right now I think I'm looking into going to like hotel management side for right now, but we'll see where it takes me. During Black History Month, a number of racial events occurred on college campuses nationwide, including right here at Slick's South City Campus. In a month where we are meant to be honoring the history of African-Americans in the United States, what kind of impact did the racial incident have on either of you as slick students and community members? Um, I think the impact that it had on some of us is just um, most of us were very shocked, but some of us weren't very shocked. Um, Typically, this is not the first time that we've had incidents take place during Black History Month. Um, during this time because people know that this is the time when we celebrate us and we celebrate those who came before us and our um, our ancestors and those who we look up to to celebrate and bring honor to them. And there's been incidents that have taken place um, here at the Taysville Redwood campus. But there's also been incidents, you know, at other campuses and other colleges and universities all over. But especially during Black History Month, I think we're just um, 
tired and disappointed of it happening and taking place, period, in general and specifically in, within that month. Jesse? Sharifa pretty much said it all. I can't really add anything. Sharifa, in response to this racial incident on campus, the Black Student Union put on a panel discussion, freedom of speech and expression for whom, not us. Can you tell us about the panel of speakers and what came from this event? Yeah, so um, this event, it actually was supposed to be just something that was um, small and for our club members. And the um, idea somewhat, it came from Steve Gordon, who works here at the college. He is the attorney assistant general, if I'm um, saying his title correctly. Um, so we, the plan was for him, he had um, volunteered to pretty much go over the um, freedom of speech laws that we have, right? And so we decided to, well, since this is not the first time we've had like this freedom of speech incident on the campus, why don't we allow everyone to attend this event? And so um, it did become a panel discussion and we made sure that um, we added other people on the panel for their perspective as well. Um, and so we had um, Romeo who works as the Utah Highway Patrol and we had two other guests, Ray, who is with the, um, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank, who is with the Black Lives Matter. And then we also had Elvis, who is also an attorney as well. And they all attended the panel just to somewhat give their perspective on what it means to have um, freedom of speech. And the event was here at the Taylorville Redwood campus for all students, faculty and staff to somewhat just hear what incidents have taken place. And some students had a lot of questions in regards to, you know, what is freedom of speech? Who gets away with what? How does the law work? How does it become an issue? Like what happens if it's, uh, if it is, uh, if you do penalize that freedom of speech law, like if there is one. And so that was kind of the point of that uh, panel discussion. And it was a great turnout. Jesse, conversations about race are necessary and important to create connection and understanding. With the understanding that it's not the responsibility of people of color to provide checklists, how can people discuss race in a way that promotes a better understanding and solidarity affecting Black communities? I think a good way for people to discuss race is by asking questions like it is not my job to educate you, but if you ask the right questions, I could probably help you. I think when you're asking those questions, it's also for it's just so good for people to ask questions with the with wanting to understand not just asking for the sake of asking to be like oh um, I act like I understand so I should be okay it should be you asking because you genuinely want to know you want to understand and because you want to apply changes because I think a lot of people do not understand that the way they discuss other matters can be offensive but if you ask someone how to address it better and you continue to address it better for the rest of your life, then you know, making progress. This is for both Jesse and Sharifa. What was your personal takeaway from the panel discussion? I'll start with Jesse first. Go ahead. Um, for me, I feel like the panel discussion was very successful. I think a lot of um, statements that were said um, needed to be said and they'd be needed to be said for a very long time. And I think, um, I think it opened up people's perspective into that we, that yes, there is the First Amendment, but um, some people, they don't exactly have as much freedom as others when it comes to freedom of speech. And it's when certain people say certain statements, they get in trouble, whereas others would not. So I think it was a very successful event. Sharifa. 
Yeah, I would like to echo what Jesse said. It was a very successful event. Um, I think some people were just not expecting for what was said in that um, room to be said. And it, it just kind of goes to show how tired we kind of are. Well, not kind of, how tired we are of having to come together and in these situations, in these times to like reiterate and explain ourselves. So although it may have been a shock to some um, how it turned out, I think for us, it was successful because then people were able to hear how we're feeling and able to take the feedback and then be able to help us in ways that we need support because like I said this is not the first time we're having these incidents so I think it's just important that they see how we are trying to come together in times like this so that we can make sure during the next Black History Month you know instead of having these conversations we can have a successful Black History Month and we can all um, share and create the memories that our ancestors have created for us back then and celebrate them now. We are talking to Black Student Union Vice President Jesse Tembo and event coordinator Sharifa Harrigan. Sharifa, uh, will you tell us the inspiration for the fashion show held during Black History Month? It was so unique and a stunning exhibition of art intersecting with heritage. Yeah, so the fashion show, I believe this is the second time we've had the fashion show. And so how the fashion show came up about, um, usually we have our office officers retreat where all the officers um, meet and plan out the year. But um, I, along with myself, um, sorry, I, along with some others um, officers in the BSU, we came up with this idea, I believe it was last year. Um, and we just wanted to have a fashion show to be able to um, show and celebrate diversity and cultures throughout all African American history. So um, we have a lot of students who come from different places, right? Because Black people come from a lot of different places. We have people from the South, from the Caribbean. We have people from Africa. We have people from the Dominican Republic. Like we just come from all different places, Haiti, like you name it, they're everywhere. So I just wanted to be able to showcase um, fashion because fashion can be used to display a lot of different things, right? And so I'm hoping that moving forward, we can um, allow for this event to be very big, like bigger, because I know uh, we do have a couple of fashion shows that take here at Salt, take place here at Salt Lake Community College, um, and but ours is more of a cultural um, aspect, right? We wanna be able to show everyone the different various um, clothing that we wear, whether it be traditional or non-traditional. And it's also the opportunity for not only students who are in the Black Student Union to take place, but faculty, staff, and you don't have to be a person of color to participate in this either. And we just wanna see people's diversity and we wanna see their fashion and their clothing, no matter the background. Jesse, what impact have you seen the Black Student Union has had on its members and the SLIC community? I think a great example would be myself. Um, I've only been in Utah for about six to seven months. And when I first got here, I think it's safe to say I was just miserable. Like I told my mom I was ready to move back home. I was just like, this place is not for me. I cannot do it. But then after being here for about two months, that's when I met Ms. Glory, who's the advisor for the Black Student Union. And she basically told me to also go to BSU. And I also met Sharifa because she works at the front desk. And she told me, like, you got to meet Ms. Glory. You got to meet the rest of the BSU members. And when I started attending meetings, that's when I finally found people who understood me, people who were, um, had similar backgrounds to me or just grew up similarly to me. And that's when I really felt like I found my community. Like, I think now when I look at my friends, pretty much all my friends and the Black Student Union. So I think um, 
I think it's it's become it's become a home for a lot of people. Like a lot of people, they look forward to Thursdays because they know we have Black Student Union on Thursdays, and sometimes after BSU meetings, we hang out. So I, I think it's a place where a lot of people have been able to find friends. And then on top of that, I think we also just um, we cater to more than just Black students. You know, we really try and um, form a community with other ethnic clubs that form under the ODMA branch. So it's really a home for a lot of people. Uh, Sharifa, how does planning an event like the fashion show differ from events like the panel discussion? Um, So with the fashion show, if you're talking about as far as like decoration, right, you have to have the lights and the stage and making sure you're having enough space. Whereas the panel discussion, um, it's more of a conversation where it's dialogue dialogue between the audience and the people on the panel, right? And so you're asking questions and um, you have these curious thoughts when you're doing panel discussion and setting up for the panel discussion, it just depends on how much we wanna put into it. But for that, we just usually just need a table, water for the panelists to sit at. And um, we would have provided lunch at the last panel discussion that we had. So I guess it just depends on the the event and how much we wanna put into it. But um, just as, each event has just as much effort and just as much time and organization to go into each of them. And Jesse, what does a responsible allyship look like? And can you paint us a picture, please? I think um, a good allyship would be people who are allies in person and then people who are allies who are not there. And what I mean by that is that if you're going to stand up for us and all rights and tell us that you stand with us, when you're in the BSU meeting, when you're in a position where people are asking about BSU and maybe they're talking down about BSU, I kind of expect you to say, actually, I'm part of the Black Student Union and I'm an ally and I, um, we have certain views and you stand up for us when we're not there. I think it's kind of important to you know, hold yourself accountable in the light and in the dark. Is there a website or any social media platforms that folks can go to find out more information? Oh, yeah, for sure. So we do have an Instagram page. Um, Our Instagram is BSU underscore SLCC. Um, And we try to post there as much as we can just to let students know um, what upcoming events we have and when our meeting days are. But um, everything that we've done in the past is documented there. So we just pretty much take pictures of everything that we do. And um, we post about events that are happening in the future and in the present. So, yeah, that's our Instagram. Jesse, what about your social media platforms? Um, my my personal, I have a YouTube channel. Um, it's literally my name, Jesse Tembo, and basically I just share vlogs with my friends. And um, sometimes I talk about important issues. Like recently, I spoke about how Africa is a continent, in fact, not one big country like everybody thinks it is. And yeah, other important topics. So yeah, Jesse Tembo. All right. We would like to thank both Jesse Tembo and Sharifa Harrigan of the Black Student Union for taking the time to speak with us. Before we let you go, what song do you want to share with us today? Um, so the song that I requested, I can't remember who it was by, but I sent it in the email. Um, it's I think it's called Year for Love. I would have to look it up, but it's pretty much just a Caribbean song that pretty much just talks about ending the violence and making sure that um people are coming together instead of, you know, fighting and um, taking violence, especially like when it comes to um, Black and African, African African-American men sometimes, well, not sometimes, but we've seen violence within our own community, but it's a song that pretty much just uplifts um, everyone and just want to make sure that we're spreading love and positivity. When we come back, Voices Amplified, Pop Culture Nuggets of the Week. Here is Year for Love by Voice. 
Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Voices Amplified edition of Radioactive. I'm Sean Stetson. Joining me now for our Pop Culture Nuggets of the Week is Johnny Tolstrup and Marcy Young Cancio. Did you watch the Oscars last night or did you hear about the slap heard around the world? Was it real or staged? Will Smith, Chris Rock. Do you think it was real? I mean, I know we're, we're talking about Will Smith, but I don't know. At first, I definitely thought it was like a bit when it was like when I first saw it live. Like I was I was sitting there with my wife and I thought like, I don't think this bit's working out very well. This isn't very funny. And then, you know, as more information comes out, you're like, oh, oh, no, it's it's not a bit like it's just celebrities losing their minds on live television. It was very uncomfortable the entire thing. But yes. And I think uh, it took away from the entire Oscars night. Yes, it totally overshadowed a really great night for a lot of fantastic films, which is really unfortunate for them. Well, and even more so, just not even the overshadowing of the films, but the Oscars has long been embattled as being too white, too cisgender, too male heavy. And this was an incredible Oscars where you had so much intention coming to the inclusivity from the hosts to Elliot Page coming on stage for the 15th anniversary of Juno, from the third female director in history winning an Academy Award, to the second ever deaf actor winning an award, it, to Beyonce opening it, across the, to everything with Encanto. This was a truly inclusive show, but now the only thing we're talking, to, talking about is that dang slap. <laughs> and I find that personally maddening. Yeah, it certainly is disappointing, but Coda did win Best Picture along with Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Supporting Actor, so it's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, you should definitely check it out. Also, March Madness, the Final Four is set with Kansas and Villanova facing off, and then Duke and North Carolina, which is a longtime rivalry, and this is Coach Krzyzewski's last year. He usually goes by Coach K because no one can spell his name, and That is set to start on the 2nd of April, so it's coming up soon with the championship game on the 4th of April. So it's very exciting, and we shall see what happens with that. I mean, Sean, give me your picks. Like, you got to tell me who's going to win, right? I I pick Duke every year just because of Coach K. I love him. J.J. Redick was my favorite player in Duke. Jason Tatum is on my Boston Celtics from Duke. So I'm, I'm always a Duke guy. A lot of hometown love, sounds like. Yeah, always. Hey, thanks, everybody. I'm Sean Stetson, and you've been listening to Voices Amplified Takeover of Radioactive in partnership with Amplify Utah and Salt Lake Community College, right here on KRCL. A special thank you to executive producer Laura Jones of Radioactive for passing the mic and giving the next wave of journalists a platform to share and connect with beloved Salt Lake community. And tonight's team making all this possible, lead producer Ariel Witterberg, Associate producer Johnny Tolstrup, booking producer Balin Paratrovich, digital producer Amy Kramer, and as always, our advisor Marcy Young Cancio. Thank you for joining us on Radioactive every Monday night at 6 right here on KRCL 90.9. In the words of the late great Cincinnati Reds broadcaster Joe Nuxall, this is the old left hander rounding third and heading for home. It looks great on you. <laughs>